Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me and will let you live. Say that you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and then sent him on his way with his wife and everything they had. Amen. Uh, Father, we want to thank you for uh, your word. We just do pray now that you would help us to understand it clearly and uh, gain a greater appreciation of who you are and what a faithful God you are and uh, that you have a plan and a promise uh, that affects us uh, and uh, is worth us putting our trust in. And so we uh, pray that you'd open up our minds and change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. How are you all coping with the uh, election campaign so far? We've, uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, there's not, not a lot of uh, positive uh, feedback just then. Uh, <coughs> we are past the halfway mark in the campaign, so that's a relief. I don't know if you realise this or not, but uh, the Australian uh, politicians have, uh, have added uh, into the political vocabulary of the uh, English-speaking word 
and very helpfully so because they've helped politicians around the world to be able to explain to us mere voters the different categories of promises that can be made during an election campaign. And you know the two terms that I'm thinking about, don't you? They've introduced the terms uh, core promise and non-core promise uh, into the English vocabulary. And uh, politicians around the world are finding that very, very helpful. Um, th three weeks into the election campaign, and the promises are really flowing pretty thick, aren't they? Uh, one party makes a, a, a promise about one thing, and the other party trumps them by offering a bigger, better, and more expensive and uncosted promise to counter the promise that uh, has been made by the other side. But when do we find out which of these promises that are being made are core promises and which of them are non-core promises? When do we find that out? We find out after the election, of course. That's the way it works. Um, friends, do you know that God has made some core promises? I'm not talking about the kind of core promises that politicians make because every promise that God ever makes uh, always comes true. But I'm talking about some promises that God has made that I would describe as being core promises because they are promises which are at the very core, at the very heart of God's plan for the world and therefore God's plan for us, for you and me. Now today what we're doing is we're, we're starting a, our second series this year on the book of Genesis and I'm calling this series Abraham and the promises of God, because what we're going to be doing over the next um, four or five weeks or so is we're going to be looking at chapters, Genesis chapters 12 through to chapter 25. And in, the, in this, this particular slab of Genesis, we learn about uh, this man Abraham and the relationship that God had with Abraham. And I'm going to say this to you, that this is one of the very most, uh, this is an incredibly important part of the Bible. Um, why do I say that? For two reasons. Number one, uh, do you ever get a little bit confused about how all of the different stories of the Bible, of the Old Testament, how they all kind of fit together and, and what, what you should make of some of the stories of the Old Testament? Uh, why did God put them there? You ever get confused about that? You ever wonder how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect together, um, how we can see them as part of an overall picture, an overall story. Well, if those questions have ever come to your mind, then I want to suggest to you this, that the promises that God made to Abraham are the key to unlocking the, the, the storyline of the whole of the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, if we understand the promises that God made to Abraham, we're going to understand the Bible a whole lot better. Now, let's begin where we left off in our first series. You might want to open up at that passage that Joanne read to us in Genesis chapter 12, where we meet the original grey nomad. Um, now, Abraham's uh, story is a little bit more complex than the typical uh, uh, retired Aussie couple that uh, hooks up the caravan to the land cruiser and leaves the city and ha heads out to the outback. Um, Abraham did leave a city. In fact, uh, during his lifetime, Abraham left two cities. And I want to just fill us in on a bit of the background of those two cities first because that will help us to understand Abram. 
The first city was called Ur. It's a nice name for a city, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, at, at the end of chapter 11, we see that Abram's dad, uh, his name was Terah, and Terah and his family, uh, including Abram and his brothers and sisters and so on, they, they lived, the whole family lived in this city which was called Ur of the Chaldeans. Um, the Chaldeans uh, were people who lived in Babylon and uh, we would say these days in the southern part of I- Iraq. Now, Ur is a pretty ugly name for a city, um, but there's a reason. The, the, the word Ur actually means city. That's what it means. And the reason that this city was called Ur of the Chaldeans was because Ur means city. At that time, and we're talking about 2100 BC, around that era, at that time. Around 2100 BC, there were other cities that were also called Ur. And that's why the author of Genesis specifies that he's talking about this particular Ur. It's Ur of the Chaldeans. So he's nailing it to one particular city. Now, it would be a mistake to think that Ur of the Chaldeans was a was a bit of a backwater, that it was not sophisticated, that it was a primitive kind of place, because in fact, Ur of the Chaldeans was a very sophisticated city. Uh, It had a population of at least a quarter of a million people, and archaeologists have found over 100,000 clay tablets uh, with writing on them that actually help us to, to develop a picture of what life was like Uh, in this thriving metropolis. Uh, Economically, it uh, had uh, a strong uh, manufacturing sector. Australia would love that, wouldn't we? eh? Uh, It had a strong manufacturing uh, sector and uh, it uh, was a a bit of a hub for... They they got involved in international trade and, in fact, they traded with countries as far afield as India where... Uh, ships from India would come up the Persian Gulf and then they would, they would then transport the goods up the Euphrates River to Ur and that would be raw materials for the manufacturing industry. So economically it was strong. Spiritually, the city skyline was dominated by a temple slash tower which was devoted to the god of the moon. But he wasn't the only god that they worshipped in Ur of the Chaldeans. It was a polytheistic society, which means that they worshipped multiple gods. Uh, 300, in fact, uh, were worshipped by the people of Ur of the Chaldeans, and that included Terah and his family. Terah, Abraham's father, was an idol worshipper. We learn about that in the book of Joshua in chapter 2. He was a worshipper of idols. So that gives you a little bit of a picture of Ur of the Chaldeans. In chapter 11 verse 31 there's a momentous thing that happened in the life of that family because Abram's father Terah decided that he was going to uproot his family. We don't know why but he was going to uproot his family and he was going to leave all of that, the comfortable lifestyle of the city and that he was going to migrate to the far less developed area of the land of Canaan. 
But they didn't get there. Uh, what they did was they, uh, he, his family left Ur of the Chaldeans and they followed what was a, a trade route that would have eventually helped them to get down towards Canaan. But along the way, they stopped over at the commercial hub city of Haran and they ended up stopping over there for good. <laughs> at least Terah did. Uh, we don't know why. Uh, it might have been because he just felt comfortable at, uh, uh, in Haran. We know that in Haran that they also had a large temple which was devoted to the worship of the moon god. We know that. But we don't know exactly why he stopped there. In fact, we don't even know exactly why he uprooted his family from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to go and migrate to Canaan. Because we're not told... But what we do know is this, that under the surface, behind the scenes, God was at work, that God was orchestrating this movement of this family because God had a plan that involved Terah's son, Abram. And part of that plan meant getting him away from all of that idol worship. And this plan would be a plan that would not only change the life of Abram, but would change the whole world for all time. And it's a plan that affects you and me right now. More of that in a moment. Back to politics. I, I felt a little bit sorry for James Diaz. Do you know who James Diaz is? Uh, James Diaz, uh, he's actually a candidate for the election, and he's an immigration lawyer by profession. And he was interviewed on television, and uh, the interviewer said to him, what are you going to do about the asylum seeker issue? And uh, James Diaz said, well, we've got a six-point plan. And the interviewer said, so what are the six points? Uh, you get the idea now. And he, yeah, he said, well, we're going to stop the boats. And the interviewer said, okay, well, that's one point. What are the other five points? He said, well, I, look, I could, I could go into the, all the detail of all of the six points if you want, but basically we're going to stop the boats. And the interviewer said, yeah, so tell us the six points. And he says, well, I've already answered that question. <laughs> Poor James Diaz. He was in, he's an immigration lawyer. He didn't know the six points. Even I know a few of the points. And uh, that particular uh, video has been shown on television all around the world. Uh, the satirical political show in the US, the John Stewart Daily Show. Anyone ever seen that? It's very funny. They did a whole, they've done a, done a show on the Australian election campaign featuring James Diaz. <laughs> okay. Now, the point of this is this. You and I should never get caught out like that. You and I need to, uh, to, need to know what God's plan for the world is and to be able to articulate God's plan for the world. What is God's plan? Well, you know, so far in Genesis, it's been a pretty grim story, hasn't it? We've learnt about creation, yes, but we've learnt about, about sin and 
the word that keeps on coming up is curse. There's been a whole lot of talk in Genesis 1 to 11 about God cursing because of sin. Uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, um, what's his name? Adam, Adam and Eve uh, were cursed and they were kicked out of the garden. Uh, Cain was cursed because he murdered his brother Abel. Uh, the, um, the whole world was cursed when God brought the flood at the time of Noah. The people of Babel would, were cursed when God confused their language and dispersed them and disempowered them. There's been a lot of talk about curse and if the Bible ended at Genesis chapter 11, you and I would be in very big trouble, wouldn't we? It's a bleak picture. But what's the opposite of God's curse? The opposite of God's curse is God's blessing. God's blessing. And in Genesis chapter 12, there's a lot of talk about God's blessing because God has a three-point plan to bless the world. Let's have a look at that. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you, bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, sometimes when we think of Abram, we think of him as being like a, a, a Bedouin nomad. And, okay, in one sense, that's what he looked like because he was a Middle Eastern man. He would have wore robes and a turban and he had camels and tents. And, but culturally, he was not a, a nomad at all. Uh, this guy was born and bred in Ur of the Chaldeans, a city of a quarter of a million people. He uh, spent the next part of his life in Haran, another uh, sophisticated commercial trading centre. He was a city slicker. He was a city man. But in verse 1, God, that is the true God, not the moon God, not the 300 other gods that his father worshipped, but the God, the true God, in verse 1, revealed himself to Abraham, spoke to Abraham and commanded him to leave it all behind to leave the city, to leave the house, to leave the family, to leave the lifestyle and follow this God, this true God, into the unknown. Because God had a plan, a three-point plan with three core promises. What are those three core promises? We're going to look at that. First of all, God promises Abram a people. Now, it's described here as being a great nation of people. They're going to come from his body. Later on in Genesis, when Abraham's faith is a little bit concerned about when this is going to happen, God says, well, look, go outside into the night air, look up into the sky on a clear night and check out all the stars and start counting them. You won't be able to count them. He said so shall your offspring be. Or later on he says, uh, your offspring are going to be like the sand on the seashore. Go down to town beach after this church day and start start counting grains of sand. You can't. God is saying you are going to father a 
and a, a countless number of people that are going to come from your seed, from your body. That's the first promise. And uh, then secondly, in verse 7, when Abraham did eventually arrive in Canaan, do you see what God promised him there? Verse 7, let me read it to you. In verse 7, God says to Abraham, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This land of Canaan will be their possession. A land for his many descendants. That's the second promise. The third promise, if you go back to verse 3, there is an amazing promise that is made there. Do you see it? In verse 3, God is going to bless all the peoples on the earth through Abram. Now, that is a stunning promise. That is just so incredibly different to what happened through Adam, through the, the curse of Adam, which we all inherit. Instead of the curse of Adam, God is actually going to bless all peoples on the face of the globe through Abram. There it is. Three core promises, a three-point plan. So how would you go if uh, the television interviewer uh, <clears throat> got you in the street and said, uh, so what are you, what's, gonna, what's God going to do about the world? And you say, well, God's got a three-point plan. And he says, so what are the three points? What are you going to say? Well, how about we say it together? God promises, number one, a people. Number two, a land. Number three, a blessing. Let's say it again. God's three promises are, number one. Number two. Number three. Okay, now keep that in your brain because next week I'm going to test you on that, okay? <laughs> and you don't want to get caught out. You don't want to be like James Diaz, uh, stunned and <laughs> having no idea whatsoever. But you see, some people might have said to Abram, look, mate, this, this plan of God's doesn't have a chance of getting off the blocks. Why would they say that? Well, think about Abram's name. At this stage, he's not called Abraham. Uh, his name is Abram. Okay? And the word Abram means exalted father. Now, we don't know why he was called Exalted Father. It may have been that his dad, Terah, was a man of high status. It might have been that one of his grandfathers was a man of prestige. It may, it may mean not that he was an Exalted Father, but that he had an Exalted Father. That's possible. At the same time, it's still a pretty embarrassing name for him because, you know, if someone introduced himself to to Abram and said, hello there, my name's Methuselah, what's yours? And he says, my name's Exalted Father. And the fellow says, well, congratulations, how many do you have? And, and what's he going to say? Well, if you, you go back to uh, chapter 11, verse 30, chapter 11, verse 30, his wife Sarai was barren. She had no kids, which for an ancient Middle Eastern man, that was terrible. And the, the clock was ticking for Abram as well. Because in chapter 12, verse 4, how old is he? 75. 
I won't, I won't put you, ask you to put your hand up if you're over 75, but the clock's ticking <laughs> for Abram. See, humanly speaking, his chances of having a son who would start this nation, who would populate this land through whom the whole world would be blessed, humanly speaking, the chances are zippo. But God had promised. And for Abram, that was good enough. I don't know if I told you this story or not, but forgive me if I have. I think it's a good story. I was once at a bird show at a zoo. Does this ring any bells? Okay, I'll keep going. <laughs> I was at a bird show at, at a zoo and they had this big, colourful bird with huge wings and so on. And the bird trainer uh, said that this bird has been trained to, um, uh, to take money in its beak and to fly off and come back and return the money. And then she picked me out of the audience and she said, do you believe me? I said, oh yeah, I suppose I believe you. And she says, well, get, up, get out your wallet and stick five bucks into the bird's beak. And you see, faith is more than just belief, isn't it? You know, anyone can say, oh, yeah, I believe that the bird will return the five bucks. You, you can say that. But, uh, when you, but faith must find its expression in trust. Faith is trust. And how do you prove that you trust the, the promise that's been made about the bird returning the five bucks? Well, if you really believe, if you really trust that, then what you will do is you will entrust. You will act. You see, James says that faith without works is dead. If you believe, if you trust, you will entrust. So I thought to myself, well, if I really do trust that the bird will give back the five bucks then why only five bucks? So I whipped out 50 bucks and put 50 bucks uh, in the bird's beak and watched it fly off into the wild blue line. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, hey, you know, if, if the bird doesn't come back with my 50 bucks and I've just purchased myself a very, very expensive sermon illustration on misplaced trust. But you see the point, don't you? That if you, uh, to, if you have faith, that faith is trust, you prove your trust by entrusting and what we see here is that Abram entrusted, in fact he entrusted his whole life into the hands of God because he trusted the promise of God and he left the city of Haran. Now that's faith. He took his family, took also his nephew Lot who we'll learn about a bit more about next week. Now, that's the good news part of the story. But Abraham was still a sinful man. And over the next few weeks, we're going to follow his journey with God. As we're going to see some of the ups and the downs. We're going to see the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, we're going to see when he was tested in his faith and when he failed and when he passed the test and so on. He's a human being. He's a sinful man. And it didn't take very long for that sinfulness to, to show itself. Uh, it didn't take long before we could see that under pressure that Abram did not always entrust himself totally to the promises of God. And we see it in uh, verses 10 through to 20, if you want to zip down to that. He's now living in Canaan 
And we're told that in Canaan at that time there was a severe famine. And this tested his faith, and his faith was found wanting in a couple of different ways. Firstly, rather than trusting that the God who had led him to this promised land would provide for him in the promised land, what did he do? Well, we're told that he actually left the promised land and he headed towards Egypt uh, because he'd been told that there was a store of uh, food in Egypt, probably told that by some travelling merchants, and he left and he went to Egypt. Secondly, he deceived the Egyptians and he mistreated his wife. Um, verses 11 through to 13. In verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Well, actually it's a half-truth when he says, you know, tell them that you're my sister. Uh, we learnt, Later on he, he did the same trick with another fellow and we're told that Sarai actually was his half, he, his sister, she was his half-sister, uh, same father, different mother. So she was in fact his half-sister, but hey, she was actually his wife. And what we see here is that there's this not only not treating her properly, but he's not trusting that God will give him a son without him intervening. Because he thinks that he might be killed without having a descendant. Uh, and so he takes things into his own hands and he gives his wife to Pharaoh. Um, in verse 16, he's paid a very handsome dowry for doing that. Uh, because Pharaoh thinks that this, you know, she's his sister. Pharaoh takes her as his wife, and Pharaoh pays Abraham lots of sheep, lots of cattle, lots of donkeys, lots of camels, and lots of servants. And so Abram becomes a rich man. But at what cost? At what cost? At the cost of uh, not trusting God, at the cost of what that meant for Sarai, and at the cost of, of, of doubting that God was going to fulfil his promises. You see, she could have ended up having a baby by Pharaoh uh, by this particular strategy. But yet God intervened. He sent a very clear and a very painful message to Pharaoh and Sarai was handed back. So that's the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, we see that he is a sinful man. But nevertheless, God will fulfil his promises. See, when a politician uh, says to you, uh, when a politician promises that they will not break any of their promises... Is that a core promise or is that a non-core promise? <laughs> that one you know for sure, that is a non-core promise. That's a definite non-core promise. But God has kept 
his promises to Abram. He has kept them. You see, the rest of the, the, rest of the story of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. It's the story of God's people living in God's land as a blessing to all nations. But it's also the story of Israel's failure to do that. The Old Testament is the story of Israel's failure to live as God's people in God's land as a blessing to all the nations. And what the Old Testament does is that it ends up pointing us uh, from the physical reality of the nation of Israel to the greater spiritual reality of one particular descendant of Abram, the man Jesus, who, by his death and resurrection, has brought life from spiritual death and has created a new people of God, a redeemed and a forgiven people of God. A people whose eternal future is in heaven, which is God's ultimate promised land. Canaan is a picture of heaven as Israel is a picture of God's church. And it's a story of the people who from all the nations of the globe have been blessed you know, when uh, the Apostle Paul was speaking to the, to the Gentile pagan Christians, some of them would have been Jews, but the Gentile Christians mostly in the pagan Turkish city of Ephesus, have a listen to what he says to them. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. You see, it's not about having the same DNA as Abram. It's about having the same faith as Abram. You see, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's about having the same faith as Abram when he did entrust himself into the promises of God because he trusted the God who had delivered those promises. And God's promises in the gospel are the promise of through the death and resurrection of Jesus of belonging to God's people. It's the promise of a heavenly land and it's a promise of blessing to people from every nation from all over the world, no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've done in your life. Forgiveness, redemption, life from death, belonging to the people of God with a heavenly inheritance can be yours through the gospel. These are the promises. This is the three-point plan for all who entrust their lives to the promises of our trustworthy God. Well, we're going to learn a whole lot more about that over the next few weeks. And uh, we've just started the journey today. 
Uh, but let's, you might want to read uh, Genesis 12 to 25. But let's just pray about that, shall we? Father, we thank you for, uh, this, uh, for, for the fact that you have a plan for this world, uh, a plan that you announced so long ago uh, to Abram, a plan which you have worked out through the course of history, uh, through the physical land of Israel, but most importantly through the death and the resurrection of your son and the coming of your spirit and the preaching of the gospel which has brought uh, life from dead souls and Father has brought us uh, into your people with a heavenly land to look forward to with all of the blessings that we've received in Christ. And we pray, Father God, that we would be a blessing to all people as we tell others about this great plan that you have put into effect through the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.